Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. Now, just uh, want to make the distinction this is different than the Gospel of John. If uh, you haven't found it, it's almost uh, at the end of the New Testament, and you will find 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we're beginning today a series in this book. As you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we would ask now in these moments that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher that he would illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would give us ears to hear, not just about you, but to hear you. And so, Lord, we look to you for this. We cannot engineer that ourselves. Help us to focus upon you and the glory of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his precious name. Amen. Be seated. Back in 2008 and 9, I preached through the Gospel of Mark. In 2009, uh, when I got to Mark 12, I saw the interaction of Jesus with, with one of the scribes. And as I prepared a message in that passage, there was a phrase in there that, I, I, I hate to use the word, has haunted me, but I cannot get away from it. He had an, this interaction with this, this uh, scribe who was inquiring of him, and here's how Jesus spoke to him at the end of that interaction. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In my Bible, I wrote at that time, uh, may no one who sits under my ministry be left not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, just outside the kingdom of God. 
and on my stand-up desk in my uh, study downstairs, I have it written right in front of me, and I pray that every day, Lord, may no one who sits under my ministry be left not far from the kingdom of God. So here are some questions. How does one know if they are going to heaven, if they are saved or if they're lost? How does one know? Can one even know that for sure? Can you ever know for sure whether you're on your way to heaven or not? Wouldn't it be arrogant to say that we know for sure we are saved, that we know for sure we're going to heaven? Isn't that arrogant to make that kind of a statement? Now, it's hard for me to imagine anyone not wanting to know the answer to those questions. But if it is possible to know for sure that we are going to heaven or where we are going when we die, wouldn't it be wise to test ourselves so that we do know rather than just hope that's the case and get to the end of our life and stand before God and then hear whether or not we are going to heaven because it's too late then. It is just too late. Your destiny is already sealed. This book of 1 John is going to help us with these questions. Let's jump in. Why should we even listen to John? Well, we are not told in the book who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but the earliest tradition attributes it to John, the beloved disciple, the son of Zebedee. And it really, among commentators and in the church down through the centuries, that authorship hasn't been questioned to any great degree or challenged to any great degree. When you look at the, the style of the book, when you look at the content of the book, it confirms that he was the one that wrote it. And so we are assuming that as the authorship of this book, assuming that for our study. So what do we know about that John? Well, back in Mark chapter 1, we see his occupation. Mark 1, 19, uh, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're always together. You see them always uh, together. So James, uh, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he, Jesus, called them, 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here is John, a fisherman in the family business. And I love how this passage, that that passage puts it. And if you can just picture it. So here is James and John. They're in the family business. They are mending the nets. I'm sure that that was a laborious task that no fisherman enjoyed doing. So there they are in the boat. Jesus comes along and calls them, says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They get up and it says, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And I just picture the father, because I'm a father, I just, I, I just picture the father saying, hey guys, can't we finish this first and, and then go follow Jesus? But anyway, that's what the scripture tells us. So back to our question, why, why listen to a fisherman? He doesn't have a whole lot of background. Why should we take time today, all these centuries later, and in the weeks to come, to listen to him? What qualifies him? Well, I just read to you uh, verses 1 through 3, and instead of reading those again to you, I just want to highlight some words from those verses, because these tell us why we should listen to John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. It was made manifest to us. And then down in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard. Do you hear all those things? So what we have here is John uses these, these four relative clauses that build on each other. And that's how he starts uh, this book. They move from the more abstract to the more concrete. The first one was uh, we, we've heard that which we have heard in verse 1. So even in the Old Testament, when, when that phrase was used, typically it meant we've heard God's voice. Should be enough. But we know that that was never the total plan. And after all, we have heard people say, I heard God's voice, and they were not trustworthy, right? I've met people like that who have assured me they heard from God, and yet they were doing things contrary to what God said in his word. So that's where it starts, and then we see the second level, that which we've seen, with our eyes. Now that's more compelling than, than just heard about. Uh, so the writer's saying, we saw him ourselves. It's not just hearsay. We didn't just 
hear about him. We've seen him ourselves. And that takes it to an entirely different level. Then, uh, verse 1 still, and have touched with our hands. Now, that indicated a material reality. We're going to see in a moment why that's so important because of some of the things that John was dealing with. And as we move through this book, we see the way he talks deals with heresies that were taking place in that day. But he says, we've touched with our, our hands. Remember from the Gospel of John? And most see this as, as parallel with that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was a real person in space and time. He was a historic person. Not an image, not a thought, but a real person. And then he he says that which we've experienced, basically. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So the, uh, the word translated made manifest, again, corresponds to the Gospel of John when it says he was made flesh. So how did John uh, hear and, and see and touch this one that he's testifying about? Well, John's saying, I saw him and I saw him with my own eyes. Jesus had called John and John followed. He saw Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. And it says in that passage, and his disciples believed in him. He saw uh, his cleansing of the temple, his healing of many, his resuscitating Lazarus. He heard his teachings. He saw Jesus transfigured talking to Moses and Elijah. He ate with him. He was touched by Jesus. Jesus washed his feet. John saw Jesus arrested, tried, and he stood there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified and when Jesus said, Son, behold your mother. And he saw the resurrected Jesus, and he ate breakfast with him. And then he saw him ascend into heaven. So why believe him? You know, John, at this point, had nothing to gain by lying. He's probably in in his 90s. When he wrote this, he had seen all the other disciples die as martyrs, but he was there. 
I saw him. And so now we can imagine John in his 90s vividly reminiscing what he saw and experienced. That's why we listen to John and once more sit at the feet of the one who sat at the side and at the feet of Jesus himself. That's how he begins this letter. I was there. I saw him. Let me tell you now what you need to know. So, of course, there's different levels of of seeing. Recently, we had uh, the Olympics. Now, I could stand here and say, yeah, I saw the Olympics. But what if we had uh, an Olympic athlete come up here and say, oh, yeah, I saw the Olympics. I was there. I competed. Let me tell you what I saw when I was there. Who are you going to believe? <laughs> Any of us can say, yeah, we saw it. But she really saw it. So in our passage, there's two different words are used. One means to look, and that's uh, used three times. The other uh, word used is a word that means to behold intelligently, to really see or to comprehend something, and that's what John is saying here. I saw him. Yeah, I really saw him. So what's the message of this letter? Well, first, second, and third John are called general epistles or letters. That means they were sent to a congregation or a group of congregations. Uh, Again, this was written uh, in the late 80s or 90s AD. John died about 100 and he was in his, uh, AD 100 and he was in his 90s. And he was uh, the only apostle to die a peaceful death in old age. So what are the issues here that he was addressing? Well, you can tell what the issues are uh, in the church of the day uh, by what John addresses, by what he says and how he says it. We're going to deal with these as we go through the book. But just to give you a heads up, there there, uh, was a group of people uh, that were kind of rising in the 90s. Uh, A.D. 90s, not the more recent 90s. Uh, and they were called the Gnostics. And he was, he was speaking in such a way that it addressed them. There was a, a where John lived, uh, a man named Serinthius. And he was kind of the spokesperson, the teacher, if you will, of those things. And they taught that Christ descended on Jesus. Did you, did you hear that? That Christ descended on Jesus and stayed there until before the death. And then Christ 
went away. So you see uh, the dangers of that. They denied that Jesus, who was in heaven, was incarnate. And we know the importance of the fact that he took on flesh. You see, that's why it's important that John speaks in this way. He says, look, no, no, I, I saw him, I touched him, and he touched me. Which is denying that he was something other than being the perfect God-man. In terms of current uh, parallel issues that churches in our day uh, are facing, as we go through the book, we're going to see how uh, the kinds of issues that churches are facing uh, in our day are addressed in this book. We will apply them to uh, church, the church, universal, uh, the local church, and also to us as individuals. Uh, but for now, how does this ap apply to us? What's it mean to me? Verse 4, he says this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Is there anybody that wouldn't want complete joy? I don't know anybody that would say that. No, I don't, I don't care to have complete joy. Of course. So what's it mean? Now, I, I've given this table many names. And I'm calling it today the table of joy. And here's why. This is how Paul talks about the table. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." This book that is before us, 1 John, prepares us to have our joy made complete. And the truths of this book prepare us for this table of joy. Let me tell you how. How does it prepare us for the, the table and that our joy may be complete? Well, first of all, for those in need of salvation. Verse 3 in the passage we read, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is one of the main thoughts of the whole letter, that we can have fellowship with God through Christ. That's salvation. Trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life. 
and toward the end of the book in 1 John 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This book will give us tests to see which path we are headed down. There is a need for salvation if one is to come to the table. The book prepares us for the table if you're in need of assurance of your salvation. In other words, if you, you say, you know, I hope I'm saved, but I, I just have all these doubts. I have all these, these, these questions. Can I even know for sure that I am saved? And 1 John 5, 13 declares, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There is a way to know. And the answer to isn't that arrogant to say, I know I'm going to heaven. It is not arrogant if it is according to the way God has revealed it. For those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And if you know you have eternal life, it makes all the difference in this life. This book prepares us for this table also if you're living in guilt. Even believers sometimes live in guilt. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the good news. You don't have to live in guilt. And this table reaffirms that. And then this table reminds us that we are loved. And as God's children, we're here to love others. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. <laughs> Is there anything better than that? If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior... If you know, you know him. And you know how you have eternal life. If you are no longer living in guilt, but you know you've been forgiven and cleansed, that you are loved by the Father, and you're a child of the living God. If these things are true of you, this table is for you. And you are invited to commune with him. And that is how your joy may be complete. Let's bow. Lord, even as we partake, we would ask 
that you would protect us from the evil one who does not want us to have an assurance that we belong to you, that wants us to think that you don't love us because of how we've acted. But Lord, you've told us otherwise. And you've said, let me show you. Come to the table and eat with me. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.